get your Mr. C swag. Mr. C and the C Report mugs, shirts, swimwear, tank tops, men's, women's, children, stationery, home goods, apparel, support, and promote America First with the C Report. Go to Shop Mr. C online store at www.thecreport.com. Click on store on the top right menu. Use coupon code 1776reborn at checkout. Will you sue him for us? Oh, we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the ass. I will never be afraid to challenge this illegitimate president. We need to focus on Donald Trump. We need to follow his money. What is fueling my soul right now is Trump. This illegitimate president. I look forward to going into the office of attorney general every day, suing him and then going home. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, America. Good evening, my brothers and sisters across the nation and across the world. Welcome to another edition of The Sea Report, coming to you live on this Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. I am your host, Mr. C, also known as Michael Aaron Gossetis, and it is great to be here with you guys again tonight, live, 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 on multiple stations, including Rumble, The Foxhole, Pill.net, Trovo, Twitch, and Clout Hub. And I hope you all are ready yet again for another good episode of The Sea Report. I like to contend that most episodes are good, but, uh, well, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. One might be wondering, what is on the agenda for tonight? What will we be discussing here at the uh, hallowed hallways of The Sea Report? Well, uh, it might be a little bit something that is different from what you guys are used to, but needless to say... As uh, as the old uh, talk around the water cooler goes, uh, we got a lot bubbling up, ladies and gentlemen, from, again, from this raid that the FBI did upon President Trump's house in Mar-a-Lago. Some people call it a compound. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it's a compound, because after all, Mar-a-Lago and uh, President Trump is not exactly a David Koresh type of situation. It's an estate. You know, you want to call it a mansion? Call it a mansion. Uh, but there is no, there is no shortage of speech, thought, discussion, worry, and uh, awe over the uh, actions that transpired on Monday over at uh, Mar-a-Lago in Florida with President Trump. Again, as we uh, featured yesterday's episode, talking about uh, the various. Uh, the various thoughts that are going through everyone's head on this. I mean, one has to wonder exactly what the heck 
is this all about? Uh, has the line been drawn in the sand? You know, has, uh, has, ha have they crossed that line? You know, it seems to be where we stand at the moment when we're talking about uh, these events. And indeed, they're important events indeed. Uh, uh, but one must remember, ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the day, we will not draw a weapon. We will not pull a rifle. We will not push a trigger, okay? Because that seems to be some of the consensus, some of the fallout, you know, from the chaos that has come out of what? These uh, somewhere around 30 FBI agents going into Mar-a-Lago and uh, not allowing the attorneys of President Trump to enter into the building. Nine-hour raid, ladies and gentlemen, a nine-hour raid, okay? And uh, it seems like uh, the detractors, it seems like the destructors of this nation, republic, and the world, and humanity and civilization in general, uh, they, they want to try and manufacture some type of a, uh, a, a, an order out of this chaos that they have created. One could indeed say that this is a chaos uh, on the part um, of the uh, deep state, the globalist interests against the patriots against the sovereign individuals of these United States of America, one would say this is indeed a perpetrated chaos. But one must not forget, ladies and gentlemen, that it is times like these that we must find our center and that calm within the storm. Indeed, we need to be able to respond to something like this and not to react. And it seems that the reaction is what most people are going for, particularly if they are uh, anti-American and uh, definitely a never-Trump type of partisan. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're just going to do a really quick update on that this evening. Uh, not much more than what we talked about yesterday. Yesterday, we went through just about the entire enchilada of information that you will find today through the interwebs and across all different um, modicums of, uh, of, of information sharing. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I believe just about the only thing that we didn't share with you guys was uh, the connection between the judge who signed off on the warrant, that being one Judge Bruce Reinhardt. Let me tell you what. The name Ryan Hart is not a name that I have come to trust. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, growing up, uh, growing up, uh, there was there was an elder in my congregation by the name of Ryan Hart, and that guy was as uh, that guy was as slippery as a fish, ladies and gentlemen. But that is neither here nor there. Uh, after all, the Judge Bruce Reinhardt that we're talking about uh, in regards to President Trump's raid on his Mar-a-Lago home. Uh, is not associated with Texas at all, but uh, is definitely associated with the likes of Jeffrey Epstein. Probably about the only piece of information that I didn't share with you guys yesterday. I showed you his face, if you guys remember. He was that really uh, creepy-looking, kind of weird-looking man that popped up out of nowhere. Well, that was uh, Judge Bruce Reinhardt, uh, you know, and as everyone has known, discovered, and found out now, because you know what? Word spreads around fast amongst the alternative independents. Oh, that word, it burns right up and down that line like fresh gasoline spilled across a, uh, spilled across a dry bush kinder, ladies and gentlemen. So everybody about knows this guy was responsible for what? He was responsible 
for uh, he was responsible for uh, assisting uh, Jeffrey Epstein in getting off easy in Florida, right? He was responsible for um, what was he doing? He was also uh, he was also what uh, assisting uh, Epstein's assistants and uh, his henchmen throughout their trials for what they were involved in with Jeffrey Epstein and his uh, and his uh, his business of human trafficking and uh, child trafficking, ladies and gentlemen. So rest assured, you know, that information is in the bag, you know, and just about anything that I can say about anything in regards to these judges, in regards to our corrupt judiciary, in regards to our corrupt third branch of government, right? Judiciary, legislative, executive, okay? We can deal with a corrupt executive. We can deal with a corrupt legislative. But when it gets down to those who um, are involved with the rule of law, when it, when, we, when it gets down to a justice that is not blind, when it gets down to a judicial figure who is not nonpartisan, that is something that is not as easy to deal with as is a legislative member of that branch, as is an executive member of that branch, you know? And and while we may never have gone after the executive, right? I, I guess we would have to use what? Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan as an example of going after the executive in recent memory? Well, you know what? That was nothing, ladies and gentlemen. That was nothing, you know? Going after the executive, it's a feat, right? But there are pathways forward. Going after a corrupt judiciary is something that is much harder. And I would say the reason why that is even harder still is not just because we're talking about someone who's at, uh, you know, a higher seat when we're talking about the rule of law and also uh, adjudicating uh, whether or not that law was broken within their own courtroom, we're talking about uh, we're talking at a, about a branch of government that few people have ever really been able to get a hold over. You know what I mean? Uh, they've been hardly ever able to get a hold over. Think about entertainment. Think about culture. What is it that we hear about in culture? Oh yeah, I went to over there into uh, I went over there into Hee-Haw County. I went over there into Podunk County, and I got pulled over for going uh, half a mile over the speed limit. The most corrupt judge, with all the corrupt attorneys and lawyers working within that county. That's what that's what that has been denigrated to, right? They never wanted the American people to think that in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that you would have corrupt judges, corrupt lawyers, corrupt district attorneys at the city level, at the metropolitan level. No, 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 no. This could never be the case. We're high society. We're civilized. We're affluent in New York City and in California and in any other big metroplex area in the nation. You would never have a corrupt judge within the city limits, not even in Chicago. But you go to Podunk Podunk Town, America, you go to Hee Haw Town, America, and there you'll find your corrupt judges. And that's just about where that ended. America has never seen the corruption of the judiciary. America has never seen the corruption of the judges, the DAs, the lawyers at a grand scale in a metropolitan area on, in mass, 
ladies and gentlemen. But what are we seeing now, okay? What are we seeing now with the trial of Michael Sussman? What are we seeing now with the two fake impeachments of Donald Trump? We're showing America the extent of the corruption in this country of our judicial branch. And this is something that needs to be seen, it needs to be noted, it needs to be recognized and acknowledged, and that is where we are. So you want to talk about the FBI going in to raid President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, and you want to talk about a corrupt judge who, do I know that Judge Reinhardt ran flights on Lolita Express? I don't know. Do I know that Judge Reinhardt was a client of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell? I don't know. Do I know that Judge Reinhardt has a propensity to like little girls and boys and perhaps was uh, shopping for some with these types of characters? I don't know. But what I do know is that based on a judicial record and historical record, this man assisted Jeffrey Epstein in getting off easy. I mean, yes, we all know that, uh, we all know that, uh, he had, he had district attorneys and representatives that were also making it easy for him. Uh, what, what is the name that comes to mind? It's Alex, 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 uh, Acosta, Ms. Alex Acosta, no, Alex Acosta, Jim Acosta, the, the DA in Florida at the time who then became president Trump, one of his, uh, one of his cabinet members and had to leave president's cabinet. Someone will throw it in the chat. I'm sure you will, because he was actually the very district attorney, the lawyer that assisted Epstein in getting a light sentence in 2000, what, 7, 8, 2007, 2008, you know? And then this very same judge goes on to represent as a lawyer, the cronies, the henchmen of Jeffrey Epstein, okay? That's all I need to know ladies and gentlemen. And it's going to paint that picture for the American people who have not seen, who cannot see, who could not see this aspect of our government, of our nation, you know? And so uh, that's, that's basically my heart open right there, ladies and gentlemen, as we get into today's episode, all right? And uh, we, uh, well, you know what? I got some stuff to share with you guys. Uh, we're going to begin, of course, with our statements from President Trump. I thank you all for joining us. If you're here with us live now, I see a couple of friends populating over there at the foxhole at pill.net rail and on. Good evening. Good to have you with us. Thank you for the 117 gold pills. My friend Skeeter Burke is in the house five by five. Thank you for that. Because, you know, whenever I'm putting these live shows together and we're getting them going, I can tell you for a fact, within 30 seconds to 40 seconds, everything populates. But uh, for some reason over at the Foxhole.app, it's taking about three to four minutes before I get the signal that I'm live over there. So I'd thrown some messages out into the chat room to figure out if I was live because uh, nothing was coming up on my end. But it appears we are definitely five by five because I see you guys over there right now. I just thought I would share that with you. Skeeter Burke asks, did you see the picture of Judge Reinhardt holding a bag of Oreos? Well, you know, yes, I did. He had a bag of Oreos. It was the vanilla Oreos, wasn't it, though? Right? That racist. 
<laughs> the vanilla Oreos with the yellow bag. Uh, and then he has this little, I don't know what kind of drink that is that he has in his hand. But uh, yeah, a lot of speculation about those Oreos as well, right? And all the symbols that are etched on them that no one realizes or understands that are eating. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I don't need to spell it out for you. Uh, we got Timba Jet in the house. Timba Jet says, hey, see, what's shaking? Making jambalaya burritos for supper. You know, when I first saw that comment, I thought it said, hey, why are you shaking, Mr. <laughs> when I first saw that comment, I thought it said, Mr. C, shaken. <laughs> Did you have jambalaya burritos? I was like, no, I didn't. But I had a highly intensely toxic meal for this, uh, this dinner this evening. Anyways, good to see you, Timber Jet. Good to see you in the audience. Thanks for joining us again, my friend. Uh, let's see what else we got going on here. Skeeter Burke, you better have another glass of coffee. You don't want to rest those eyes tonight. <laughs> Uh, casual GG17, great to see you tonight. Thank you and welcome back into the show, into the chat room. I'm glad you're joining us this evening. Nothing compromising, he just looked like a moron. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Those were adrenochrome Oreo cookies, weren't they, Skeeter Burke? <laughs> too funny, too funny. You guys are too funny. Okay, all right. So uh, let's go. <laughs> Skeeter Burke, last time I talked to you, you were drinking coffee. Now you're drinking chamomile tea. <laughs> wake up, hon. Wake up. Okay. Hey, okay. All right. At least stay awake for the first 45 minutes of tonight's program. And then you can fall asleep and you will have pleasant dreams of President Trump. He'll be talking in your ear if uh, you remain on the channel through and through, Skeeter Burke. Sean Joe, good evening, my friend. Welcome into the audience. Thank you for gifting the cookie. Glad to have you with us, and uh, absolutely welcome back. Tam Growl's in the house. You ain't late, Tam Growl. I just started. I just started on a hard rant. That's what happened here, uh, Miss Tam Growl. So you're not late. You're not late. I'm just, I'm just ranting right out of the gates <laughs> tonight. Just ranting right out. You know why I'm ranting right out of the gates? It's because of that video I played of Letitia James. Okay, that's why I'm ranting hard out of the gates. That stuff absolutely ticks me off who on earth can campaign on uh, on on litigating and indicting a sitting president i mean isn't that against the law like i'm gonna run for congress so i can make sure my opponent goes to jail you can't do that so what makes you think that you can run for office on the promise of arresting a sitting president i'm sure there is a law in there somewhere that I have shared with the, the audience at some point in the history of this show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Good evening, Raven2000. Good to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> Skeeterbrook says, I can't help it. I had a cup of chamomile and I've been up since 5 a.m. Yes, I'm aware of that. <laughs> I got your message long about 5 a.m. Now, I was not up at 5 a.m. Surprise, surprise. Sometimes I am up at that time, but uh, don't, don't, don't tell the family, right? <laughs> you never know. You never know. You never know. All right, guys. Uh, I have, a, I have a, to me, some very important information that I would like to share with the audience today and to share with uh, not just my live audience right now. You know, we have a we have a live audience that's pretty active and vast across pill.net and the foxhole.app as that is 
basically uh, the uh, the first platform that opened their arms to the Sea Report. I had no idea who the foxhole was, have no idea who Methods and a Red Pill 78 and Praying Medic and uh, and uh, Woke Societies and the Red Pill, I mean, and Tron and, and uh, Space Ghost. I didn't know who any of these people were. All I know is uh, the team I used to work with, the Q&A holes, was like, hey, Mr. C, have you ever heard the foxhole? And I was like, well, actually, I just discovered them last night. What a coincidence, right? What a coincidence. I find them one day, the next day, my old team's like, let's get on the foxhole. And that's how we got onto the foxhole. You know, I have no idea who any of these people are. And I was like, oh, smack. These people were some of the main people the main influencers, right? My brother always used to say, don't be influenced, Michael, be inspired, okay? Well, the main influencers here on Foxhole, I had no idea that they were such, you know, Jordan say there, I had no idea that they were like the tip top of the Q crop, ladies and gentlemen. That's, that's my story with the Foxhole, right? But they, they welcomed myself and the Q&A holes with open arms, right? We found a community that uh, uh, welcomed us in and, and have been very amicable and have been pleasant and have been supportive. And so my thanks to them. And, you know, so if you're watching us over at Rumble or at Twitch or at Clout Hub and you're wondering why I don't get to engage with as much with those other platforms as I do with like the foxhole or pill.net. Well, it is in fact because uh, one, I don't have all of the monitors necessary to, uh, or the bandwidth to watch all of these different platforms and respond. By the way, hey, speak uneasy, how you doing? Welcome on over. It's good to see you, my brother. But uh, also because, you know, um, um, if you want to get in on the chat, there's a great community over there. There's a great community of innocent. There's a great community of innocent. There is a great community of innocent patriots at thefoxhole.app and pilled.net. Do you hear what I'm saying out there? A great community of innocent patriots at that platform. And it is my pleasure and my privilege to know them. And that's about all I got to say about that. But uh, and, and just in case, because, you know, uh, Mr. CTV, the channel itself and the shows are growing and expanding as we speak, ladies and gentlemen. And so every now and then I might sound like a broken record to some of you guys who have been with us since the beginning. Uh, but as 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 I continue to grow as a platform, as a channel, um, I need to throw out some of those signals to uh, to the newbies. Uh, that are coming in and uh, who are, uh, you know, becoming part of the Mr. CTV family. And so, you know what, with, with open arms, with open arms, ladies and gentlemen, with open arms, we all welcome you guys in. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Sean Joe says, I remember when Mr. C first started <laughs> on Foxhole, I said to him, you got to cackle like Kamala. <laughs> Oh, damn you. I just kidding. Damn you, Sean Joe. No, just kidding. Timbajet says, who are you calling innocent? My brother, my friend, I'm saying those words for a reason. And it's because I love you guys and my gut has a good sense about this audience. Uh, Tam Growl says, I've been with Mr. C ever since. We started. I remember Tam Growl. I remember you being back there way back then, back when, you know? <laughs> so, 
And I'm so glad. So glad. Raven says, I'm glad you did. You know, I'm glad they accepted us in onto the foxhole. That was the first, that was our first big break as the Q&A holes. That was our first big break. You know, we'd already been on the air doing our own thing in the, uh, the, the lonely desert plains and the wilderness of YouTube and Twitch, you know? Um, so that was our first big break. I'll, I'll uh, forever be grateful, but I just need to make it established and clear that is all I know about Foxhole. They let us in, okay? I didn't know anybody else, had no association with them, and uh, it's, a, it's a, been a big, great old patriotic family since then, ladies and gentlemen. So now, with that said, we need to jump into President Trump's statements, ladies and gentlemen, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, President Trump just released a series of videos about about Attorney General Letitia James. Okay, that's what's that's what's got me on fire right now, Tam Growl. Okay, is seeing this snake, seeing this this viper, you know, Letitia James, whose only intention and who, you know, what Letitia James probably don't even give a damn about the people of New York, let alone this nation. All she wants to do is make a name for herself, okay? That's all this narcissistic, cunning woman, if you want to call her that, if she can define herself as that since she is a Democrat, uh, it wants in her life. She just wants to take home the trophy that says, I indicted President Trump, you know? Uh, she, you know she's, she's been far more successful then one of her buddies, Cyrus Vance Jr., you know, his, his retirement dream was to have the same plaque. He wanted the same trophy that said, I indicted President Trump. Of course, he wasn't successful. But Letitia James, oh, she's stepping up the, that notch a little bit more. And she's really going in on it. So we're going to show you those videos, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to show you those videos, Okay. And then we're going to talk business. We're going to talk business. I'm going to get personal with you guys. I'm going to get personal with you guys tonight. Okay? And you'll see what I mean on the other side of President Trump's truths. Okay? So let's go ahead and get those a-rolling, shall we? All right. First statement from President Trump tonight in New York City tonight, seeing racist New York State Attorney General tomorrow for a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in United States history. My great company and myself are being attacked from all sides. Banana Republic. Now, interesting enough, you know, I saw some comments coming from some people about referring to our nation as a banana republic. Now, obviously, obviously, we know this is a constitutional republic. Obviously, we won't hold this necessarily as a banana republic, but metaphorically speaking, that is kind of where we are, though, you know? Um, that is where we are. Do you know how many? Um, do you know how many people who fled from communist nations and uh, fascistic type of authoritarian nations are 
basically suffering a bout of PTSD over what happened to President Trump yesterday. I mean, on Monday, right? Do you know how many people are like, this reminds me of Cuba. Uh, you know, this reminds me of, uh, of uh, the Soviet Union. Like, you don't do this in a truly free nation. There's people who are like, you know, they're seizing up over the idea of the FBI raiding a former president when, in fact, it's well documented that there have been presidents who were corrupt compared to him. I would say who were more corrupt, but he's not. OK, he, presidents who were corrupt, who were corrupt, who did corrupt things, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, yeah. They're seizing up over it. They, they're, they're, they need a bag to breathe, right? They're hyperventilating. They're like, I left the Soviet Union for this. I left communist Cuba to get away from this. I left Venezuela because it collapsed under socialism. And now they're seeing their nightmares reborn here on the shores of the United States of America. Big problem, right? Big problem, right? That's why Letitia James up there in New York State is a big problem. You know what? She says she wants to be a pain in the ass to Trump. I think the people need to be a pain in her ass. Do I think that means that they need to go shoot her in the ass? No, no. But there are ways to get these people out of office, okay? Next statement from President Trump goes this way. It says the FBI and others from the federal government would not let anyone, including my lawyers, be anywhere near the areas that were rummaged and otherwise looked at during the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Everyone was asked to leave the premises. They wanted to be left alone without any witnesses to see what they were doing, taking or hopefully not planting. Why did they strongly insist on having nobody watching them, everybody out? Obama and Clinton were never raided, despite big disputes. Now, you're going to have your average never-Trumper saying, Oh, President Trump is just trying to plant those seeds of, him, of them planting something in his Mar-a-Lago home to bring home about. Oh, President Trump is just projecting. Oh, President Trump is just trying to get ahead of the story. But ladies and gentlemen, let's face it. It's been known that those types of things happen. So should there be any doubt that that is possible? You know, I, I would go back to this, right? What, what was that? Uh, and I don't, I don't expect any of you guys to remember or to know. But, but there was this Latin phrase uh, that we shared here, oh, probably like six months ago at the Sea Report, that uh, basically said this in English, uh, 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 someone who lies about one thing lies about everything, okay? Okay? And, and taking that statement and putting it in the context of two opposing sides, when you look at the two opposing sides, who is the known liar here? President Trump or the FBI? Comey, Comey, Comey. Okay, all right. I think that that battle is decided, right? 
So, do we think that President Trump would be lying about planting something here? Probably not. If you look at his track record, okay, if you look at his public track record, chances are the man is telling the truth compared to uh, an entity like the FBI who has lied and lied and lied incessantly throughout its entire lifespan. Lied and lied and lied. Who are you going to believe? You know, I think it's a real gamble if the FBI did in fact decide to make the power play to plant something in Mar-a-Lago to frame President Trump with. I think it's a real, real gamble for the deep state and the globalist interest and the FBI itself when you're talking about the public opinion of the American people. Because with the raid of Mar-a-Lago on President Trump already, we're talking about the public opinion has shifted, okay? I don't think that this is just the momentum of potential energy coming from the hopes and the wishes of Trump supporters and the patriotic people. I think even the non-Trump supporting individual can clearly see that the favor has shifted here, okay? Because if you can let George W. Bush get away with weapons of mass destruction, if you can let Bill Clinton get away with fornicating in the White House, and if you can get, if you can let Hillary Clinton get away with blit beaching and hammering all of her emails into non-existence because the fool thinks she's above technology and she does not get a raid, you better damn well believe that the people of America do not agree with President Trump being raided. I don't care what side of the political line that they stand on or even if they're balancing themselves on the fence, there's no way. There's no way you get two Clintons in the bush to get away with you know, all of the things that they did. And you're going to go after this man because you want to uh, you want to uh, influence Americans into believing that uh, he caused a false flag capital riot on January 6th and that he tried to uh, undo elections that were stolen from him. When vast amounts of evidence already exist to suggest otherwise, these people are far behind the times and relying on the archaic documents of November and December 2020, wherein the judges threw out the cases on a technicality of no standing, which in itself is bullshit. Okay, so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, these deep staters and these uh, globalist-influenced hacks, traitors, communists, and treasonous bastards, they don't stand a chance at this point. You know, that energy is growing. What is that called? Truth is rising, ladies and gentlemen. The light is rising, ladies and gentlemen, in the hearts and the minds and the souls of the American people. And the world is watching, okay? The world is watching. They want to see how we're going to react. They want to know what we're going to do. I think the world is more interested in how we, the American people, are going to respond, not react, but respond to everything that's happened since November 2020. They're watching us, ladies and gentlemen, and I pray may we 
be the example that we need to be for the rest of the world. And I have a feeling that we will be. I have a feeling that we are. I have a feeling that we are. They're looking at us. They're looking at us, ladies and gentlemen. We, we are the people the rest of the world look up to to find out how to deal with such tyrants. Keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen. Keep that in mind. And, and I would say particularly to my brothers and sisters out there that have an itching trigger finger, you keep that in mind. They're looking to us as an example, ladies and gentlemen. We, we bear a lot of responsibility for this planet. I think we bear a lot more responsibility than we recognize at times because after all, we are nothing but specks of dust in this entire universe and this entire grand scheme of things. But at the micro level on the planet Earth, we are those whom they look for guidance to. We are those whom they look for inspiration, not influence. Who cares about influence? You want to be inspired, ladies and gentlemen. You want to be inspired, not influenced. Okay? Next statement. At the very plush, beautiful, and expensive Attorney General's office, nice working conditions as people are being murdered all over New York. And she spends her time and effort on trying to get Trump. Letitia James, the racist attorney general of New York State. Next statement. In early June, the DOJ and the FBI asked my legal representatives to put an extra lock on the door leading to the place where boxes were stored in Mar-a-Lago. We agreed. They were shown the secured area, and they were shown the boxes themselves. Then on Monday, without notification or warning, an army of agents broke into Mar-a-Lago, went to the same storage area, and ripped open the lock that they had asked to be installed. A surprise attack, politics, and all the while, our country is going to hell. Now, isn't that interesting, that statement alone, you know? I would say, ladies and gentlemen, I would say, uh, this is all just going to bite them in the ass. It's, it's the same thing like we were seeing with, like, lying Cassidy Hutchinson. It's the same thing like we're seeing with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer in, in, in failing to secure the assistance of the National Guard, 10,000 to 20,000 troops at the Capitol for January 6th, with lying Cassidy Hutchinson, who's crying and pleading for money, for legal representation, who wants to fly away with the Trump team to Florida at Mar-a-Lago to work with President Trump. The same crap. And now we discover that the FBI and the DOJ put up the entire specification for what they wanted to, I guess, eventually get in the end. And then they take nine hours. To, they knew where it was. They knew where the boxes were. What took them nine hours to do it, right? Because they got to flush some documents down the toilet and take a photo op. Because they got to uh, 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 rummage through Melania Trump's uh, personal belongings. You know, what's up with that, right? What is up with that, ladies and gentlemen? 
Uh, and this should clearly illustrate the hypocrisy and the maleficence of such actions on the part of the FBI. Here's the next statement from President Trump. Just leaving the Attorney General's office, a very professional meeting. Have a fantastic company with great assets, very little debt, and lots of cash. Only in America. Only in America. It's great that he finds a way to still find some praise in all of that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, here's our final statement from President Trump. It's a rather lengthy one. So let me go ahead and uh, we'll expand that. I'll get myself off the screen and uh, here we go. It reads like this. Attorney General Letitia James openly campaigned on the policy of get and destroy Trump. This political attack on me, my family, and my great company is her despicable attempt to fulfill that cynical and very corrupt promise. James developed a political platform and made a career out of maliciously attacking me and my business before she was even elected or reviewed one of the millions of pages of documents we willingly produced. She claimed I look forward to going into the office of Attorney General every day, suing him, and then going home. She announced what is fueling my soul right now is Trump, and that she had her eyes on Trump Tower. She even assured her supporters in an election promise that we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the ass. He's going to know my name personally. And she claimed I was an illegitimate president. In her attorney general victory speech, she promised to shine a bright light onto every dark corner of Trump's real estate holdings. Shortly thereafter, she vowed to use every area of the law to investigate President Trump and his business transactions and that of his family as well. Letitia James is a failed politician who has intentionally colluded with others to carry out his phony years-long crusade that has wasted countless taxpayer dollars, all in an effort to prop up her political career. During her, treated, her heated Trump rhetoric, she ran for governor of New York State using getting Trump as her primary credential. It did not work. She got very low poll numbers and ran back into the office of Attorney General to continue the persecution of President Donald Trump. Despite the fact that New York is suffering its worst murder, drug, and overall crime rate in many decades, criminals are running rampant, shooting, slashing, and hurting people on the sidewalks of New York, while she and her office spend a big percentage of their time and money on their Trump vendetta. Letitia James openly stated her hostilities toward me and kind of retribution that is unthinkable. 
Years of work and tens of millions of dollars have been spent on this, uh, on this long, simmering saga and to no avail. James now realizes I built a great company with tremendous value and her case is a scam, which is why for years they have not been able to file a single charge. What Letitia James tried to do the last three years is a disgrace to the legal system and affront to New York State's taxpayers and a violation of the solemn rights and protections afforded by the state's constitution. I did nothing wrong, which is why, after five years of looking, the federal, state, and local governments, together with the fake news, have found nothing. We cannot permit a renegade and out-of-control prosecutor to use this investigation as a means of advancing her political career. New York deserves better, and this country deserves better. This is a vindictive and self-serving fishing expedition, the likes of which our country has never seen before. The United States Constitution exists for this very purpose, and I will utilize it to the fullest extent to defend myself against this malicious attack by this administration, this Attorney General's office, and all other attacks on my family, my business, and our country. I once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Now I know the answer to that question. When your family, your company, and all the people in your orbit have become the targets of an unfounded, politically motivated witch hunt supported by lawyers, prosecutors, and the fake news media, you have no choice. If there was any question in my mind, the raid of my home, Mar-a-Lago, on Monday by the FBI just two days prior to this deposition wiped out any uncertainty. I have absolutely no choice because the current administration and many prosecutors in this country have lost all moral and ethical boundaries of decency. Accordingly, under the advice of my counsel and for all the above reasons, I declined the, to answer the question under the rights and privileges afforded to every citizen under the United States Constitution. Whew. You know, you think it's a sad day. You think it's a sad day when the FBI is politicized and weaponized to the point that they raid the home of a duly elected president innocent at that. But uh, that realization of our Fifth Amendment right, the utilization by our president to do so, and the explanation that he offered to we, the people, kind of takes it to another level, you know?
kind of takes it to another level uh, as far as the uh, despotic nature of these actions, ladies and gentlemen, as far as the despotic nature of these actions. E easy to understand and clear to see why some individuals out there are ready to go take them out, are ready to go and fight, you know. There, there are already rallies that are being organized around this event, ladies and gentlemen. There are already rallies that are being organized around what occurred on Monday. To that, I could only pray here and now, well before the day that those rallies begin, that we gather peacefully, that we gather with a sound and cognizant mind, and that we do not give in to any of the rages that such events could inspire inside of us. Because among all the other distractions and all the other middle fingers that the, uh, the deep state, the establishment, are pointing at us, that seed of anger and rage and hate is what they want to bloom inside of us. It's one of their main causes of action. It's almost their modus operandi. Get the Trump supporters to become violent. And we must not, ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, ever consider it until it is absolutely necessary. And may we pray that day does not come. That's why I'm sharing with you the election news. I'm sharing with you the election integrity measures. I'm sharing with you the evidence of fraud. I'm sharing with you how the American people are fighting back. I'm sharing with you the way that the American people are getting it done. With no guns drawn, only the ink of our pens, ladies and gentlemen, only the ink of our pens. That's been the entire basis of this broadcast, okay? That's been the entire basis of this broadcast. Perhaps there's some kind of a center here. Perhaps there's some kind of a place to go when everyone else is raging, when everyone else is pissed off, mad, when everyone else is fuming and screaming at their audiences because they are just pissed off at all this bullshit. Find your center at the sea report. Find your middle ground. Find the way to think through it. That's why I'm here particularly, ladies and gentlemen, as a transmitter, as a transmitter of information and perhaps of frequencies that you might not catch anywhere else. And if they resonate, all the better. But we have to keep that in mind. Even in these trying hours, we have to stay centered. We have to remain calm. 
we have to respond, not react, okay? Not react. All right, moving forward, I'm gonna play a series of uh, Trump, pardon me, President Trump released a series of videos on his Truth Social, uh, all of which are pertaining to one, Letitia James, and uh, what he is going through with his witch hunt. I think right about now, uh, President Trump is making his um, moves against Letitia James because with the raid and with J6 and with this witch in New York, things are getting kind of hairy. Are we going to see President Trump freak out and lose his cool? Or do you think he's going to stay cool as a cucumber, you know, uh, swatting a zero on the golf course? <laughs> I am no... I am no athlete, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what you call a winning hole-in-one, right? Like a cool, a cool cucumber hole-in-one on the golf course, right? That's what President Trump is going to be doing, ladies and gentlemen. I have a feeling that President Trump is going to remain cool as a cucumber, right? In a nice crisper fridge or something like that, right? And uh, we should follow his example. We should be inspired by his lead, not influenced. We don't like to be influenced, right? It's about inspiration. It's about moving people. It's about resonating within them, not coercing them and not, uh, you know, influencing them to do things. It's about inspiration. It's about, you know, leaders inspire, losers influence, okay? And, uh... Influence is just basically telling people what to do. And uh, uh, what's the other good word for coercion, right? Uh, that, that you persuade them. Influencers persuade and coerce and threaten. We don't need that, ladies and gentlemen. We don't need that. President Trump has never told us what to do and how to do it. He's always done it. He's shown us and he's inspired us to follow suit. That makes sense, right? I think that makes perfect sense. It resonates with me. I don't know if it resonates with you. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, so we're going to play these videos next real quick before we uh, jump into these videos. We got about two or three of them. I just want to read some of the comments here because you guys are uh, you guys are lighting it up over there. You guys are lighting up. The Nazis in charge get pissed when we call them commies. Just saying. Ah, that's a true statement right there. I hope he does a thorough swipe for bugs now, says Tam Growl over at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Timpajet says, Tam Growl, Secret Service will, will, I'm sure. I'm not sure if Trump trusts them, though. Well, you know, I would probably say President Trump trusts the Secret Service around him now more than the ones that were around him while he was optically in the White House, I would think, you know? Uh, Timpajet also says, I bet you he had cameras in every nook and cranny. Cash sort of said that. 123SKG, good evening. How are you doing tonight? 123 says, uh, I love your yellow shirt. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Timpajet says, is that your last shirt? Clean shirt? <laughs> is that your last clean shirt, Mr. C? Actually, this is my first shirt that I found out fits. So uh, <laughs> I got a whole closet. I have a whole prism of colors in my closet I have not worn because... Uh, I didn't think they fit. Uh, we're wearing my celebratory yellow. I'm glad you like it, uh, 123SKG. It's one of my favorites. Uh, Timbajet, 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 if I may, if I may, we'll put this to bed right now. As I've said in the past, 
I always wear pants when I'm on a live stream. I think, and I might be old fashioned, but I think it's really disrespectful if I were to be sitting here in my underoos, okay? That's just me, it might be old fashioned, but I am no Lubin Tubin, okay? So I wear pants. I might not be wearing slacks. <laughs> I'd be really hardcore if I were wearing slacks in a loft in a hundred degree weather, right? Anyways. <laughs> I always wear pants. I feel dirty. I'd feel dirty if I were sitting here in my underwear, you know? I just, it feels dirty, okay? It feels like, I, I don't know, sitting here in my underwear with all of you guys looking at me? No, thank you. Okay. <laughs> oh, my bad. Timba Jet's like, whenever I'm in my boxers. Excuse me, excuse me. Town Girl says, I have on a big t-shirt comfy and I'm in bed already. You need to get yourself a Mr. T-shirt, Tam Growl, okay? We got some, we got some of those uh, comfy, comfy t-shirts over at uh, Shop Mr. C. Um, okay, or Mr. C Shop TV, whatever it's called. Mr. Uh, the C Report.com. You just go there, you'll find the shop, okay? <laughs> you guys are funny. Okay, all right, uh, let's see here. <laughs> Disco Ball Chaser says, two Bushes and a Clinton. <laughs> Coin that phrase, two Bushes and a Clinton. Anyways, uh, everyone call Letitia James' office, says Raven Tooth. Why not? You know, that's the interesting thing. You know, when it came down to Attorney General Brnovich over there in Arizona, you know, when I was in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Nevada... Uh, at the uh, at the, um, uh, the the Patriot Double Down, and I don't know anyone who got the video. You might see me asking the panel a question. I choked. Okay, I choked so hard, but I was like, "Do we call Attorney Ger Do we call Attorney General Brnovich and tell him that he needs to prosecute? Uh, do we call Attorney General Brnovich and tells him and tell him, hey, we sent you the uh, we sent you the audit. Why haven't you done nothing?'" And Wendy Rogers told me not to call him because he's not a legislator. He is a law enforcer. But by all means, call Letitia James. Give her a piece of your mind, you know? But that's just what Wendy Rogers said. And then later on, they're like, you need to contact Attorney General Brnovich. The bear's still asleep. And I was like, well, I asked you that question, Wendy. You told me not to call him. So I told my audience not to call him. Anyways. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Timbajet says, a storm is coming. Hey, Queen Peckerwood, how you doing tonight? Good to see you. To Raven2000 says, remember, the FBI has no authority over us. Just call your sheriff if the MPI comes to your door. Good advice. If you got the ATF or the FBI coming to your door, call your sheriff. And uh, let's see if they don't uh, walk off in handcuffs, right? Because it's not their jurisdiction. Get the heck out of here, right? Get the heck out of here. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's Mr. C from The C Report, and I'm stopping in for just a sec to encourage you guys to head over to thecreport.com. At thecreport.com, you can get more information on The C Report, check out episode resources, follow our blog and get new articles every week, join our mailing list, and stay abreast on the latest news and information. 
That's right, head on over to thecreport.com, that's www.thecreport.com, and be sure to follow us on our social medias, Truth Social, Rumble, Twitch, CloutHub, and Pill.net. New York State, the Attorney General here, has now issued subpoenas for Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's two children, two of his children, to testify, to come be deposed in this civil action that they are trying to take against the company here. Well, what happens if you don't show up for a subpoena? What's going on here with Don Jr. and Ivanka trying to quash this A and B? If they don't successfully do that, can they just not show? So they're in court now trying to quash the subpoena. I agree with Tim. It is very difficult legally to quash a subpoena. But I do want to say this. The Trump's argument here is not absurd. It's not ridiculous. The crux of their argument is we have been politically targeted by this attorney general, Letitia James. And you know what? They're right. And that's not a matter of opinion or speculation. That's a matter of fact, because Letitia James herself said it over and over again when she, when she was running for attorney general of New York. She said essentially the main plank of her platform was vote for me and I'll nail the Trumps. Now, I object to that. I don't think any prosecutor, Republican or Democrat, should ever run for office as a prosecutor on a platform of vote for me and I will nail this specific person. But more to the point, it's counterproductive because now her own statements of politicization are being used against her. Ultimately, a judge will rule on this. If the subpoena is quashed, then it's over. If it's not, they'll have to show up and testify. And if they fail to do that, then there could be further consequences. They could be held in contempt and eventually prosecuted for defying a court order. Oh, how they mock me with MRC News. <laughs> Thanks a lot, President Trump. You guys saw that, right? <laughs> yeah, here it is, guys. Th th this is this is the MRC that took over my freaking handle at Truth Social, okay? That bulldog right there, okay? Truth Social decided to give my handle to them even though I chose my handle before they even cared to think about Truth Social. And uh, I advertised and promoted Truth Social for months before it was even live for the beta users. Anyways, I'm not bitter. I just thought I'd point that out. I mean, uh, Tracy Beans and Ali Alexander are associated with MRC TV, so I can understand why they just freaking didn't care about running me over. It's whatever. Okay. All right. Next uh, video. This one's a little bit more... Uh, uh, this one's a little bit more inflaming than the last one. Let's go ahead and run it. I what would you say to people who say, oh, I'm not going to bother to register to vote because my voice doesn't make a difference, or I'm just one person? I say one, I say one name, Donald Trump. That should motivate you. Up your ass and vote. Will, you, will you sue him for us? Oh, we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the ass. I know my name personally. I love it. He probably does already. He built his wealth off the backs of New Yorkers. We need to focus on Donald Trump and his abuses. We need to follow his money. We need to find out where he's laundered money. All of those transactions have happened here in New York City. Tell this president and every other individual that no one is above the law. 
I say the bottom line is, is that residents from Brooklyn who are going to really make the difference are energized. Individuals from the city are energized. Individuals who care about statewide issues are energized. Individuals who care about, again, going after Donald Trump as illegitimate governor. Individuals who care that he has colluded and that he's violated the emoluments clause. And that basically all that he stands for is in violation of our values and who we are as a people and as a society. And so individuals who care about this country and who care about our rights and who care about, again, immigrants who are hiding right now, we've got to make some noise. We've got to let our voices know. And what we need is someone who's going to take the fight to White House at the same time representing the interests of New York. Her name is Letitia James. And that's running for attorney general because I will never be afraid to challenge this illegitimate president when our fundamental rights are at stake. A legal system where even the most powerful in the country cannot use a loophole to evade justice. We must do our job to ensure that the man currently occupying the Oval Office is held accountable to any and everything he has done. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> there you go. This woman totally running on a platform of destroying President Trump. Not the way you want to go. And I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, ladies and gentlemen, pretty sure that that that's uh, there's something that there's something illegal about that. You know, there's something illegal about that. But. Uh, a lot to think about, ladies and gentlemen. A lot to think about uh, in that regard. So, uh, you know, it's always it's always been an uphill battle for anyone who wanted to, to do right by their fellow man or wanted to walk that righteous path, you know, that wanted to do good. Always the easy path for the wicked, isn't it? It's, it's almost unfair, uh, but that's the way it is, you know, and the main course of action for anyone who has wanted to walk that wicked path, and in particular, uh, when we're talking about uh, society, and we're talking about uh, one's fellow man in regard to governance and politics and that amounts to control and power, the main tool has always been deception, right? If we were made in the image of our God, our Father, ladies and gentlemen, could it not stand to reason that the wicked were created in the image of their father, the father of lies, ladies and gentlemen. And why would it not be if they were created in that manner that they would not then also utilize the tool of deception as well, if not as good as that which they represent? Okay. Now, this is not a theological discussion, ladies and gentlemen, by any means, but well documented is the very many methods of deception 
that have been used against the people who just want to live, that just want to have a good life, that just want to have a family with some meaning in it and, you know, and just live a good life. Who have become so usurped by the way that the system was designed to distract us to destroy us, to tire us out, to make us apathetic, to, not, to make us not care. Totally part of the design, ladies and gentlemen. Totally part of the design. But this deception goes back a long, long way, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, it goes back a long way in this country, you know. It, it, it is almost on par with a topic of discussion that has become rather prevalent here at the desk of the C-Report. And one that, you know, I am, I am willing to share as perspective for the rest of us out there. And also for myself. And also for myself. About the, thing, the way that things were as an explanation for the way that things are. Now, you ask any sleeping American who votes on party lines, Democrat or Republican, whom at this point, in the face of these actions taken by our federal government, by our White House, by our Department of Justice, any any asleep American who votes on party lines, who plays the party politics, might be asking themselves, what's going on here? These are, this is much more serious than impeachment, right? This is much more serious than disagreement, right? Much more serious than that. Because when, it get, when you get to things like the FBI and the CIA, for some reason... People take those entities far more serious than our elected officials. They should. And they do. They do. But for those people to now be shaken awake just a bit from the actions that have transpired over the last couple of days, one has to wonder... If the question of how we got here is starting to bear fruit in their mind, I wonder if the question of how we got here is starting to blossom in y'all's mind, you know? We could take a long, hard look at recent history and we could decide for ourselves how we got here. Oh, well, you know. After they assassinated JFK, the CIA just basically took over the government as the uh, as the uh, on the ground strong arm of the central bank and the IRS. The uh, CIA was their weapon, weaponized federal agency funded by who? Probably the taxpayers by way of the income tax and whatever uh, other type of dark monies that they have been uh, spending. Mm -hmm. So, uh, here's the question. Did it really start there? Or did it start before? Where did this inclination for division begin? 
ladies and gentlemen, where did this inclination for division of the American people into separate and compartmentalized labels and parties begin? And if indeed united we stand and divided we fall, if that was the plan, how far back does that plan go? We're going to go back to the origin of this country. We're going to go back to our founding fathers, ladies and gentlemen, to the origins of the political party in America. Just for some perspective and just as a refresher, so that you all know when I get behind this computer at my desk and I come at everyone with, we don't need political parties anymore. America has outgrown political parties. We as individual humans, as free moral agents, have outgrown the political party. There's a reason for that, ladies and gentlemen. There's a reason. It's not just because we need to escape the obvious division that political parties cost us. It's because at the root of this nation, political parties were despised. Political parties were frowned on. Political parties were never intended to be part of the infrastructure of this nation. Ladies and gentlemen, the political party was never meant to be part of the American way of life. We were always meant to be united, standing together as one nation, one people under one flag and one God. Not a two-party system, not a system divided by multiple political parties. One people, one nation, one flag, one God, America, ladies and gentlemen, okay? So, let's take a brief look, if you will. <laughs> it might not be so brief. But what was it said by our founding fathers about our nation and political parties? What are the origins and where did it come from? Let's take a look at this article here. In brief, the founding fathers feared political factions would tear the nation apart. Today, it may seem impossible to imagine the United States government without its two leading political parties, Democrats and Republicans. But in 1787, when delegates to the Constitutional Convention gathered in Philadelphia to hash out the foundations of their new government, they entirely omitted political parties from the new nation's founding document. This was no accident. The framers of the new constitution desperately wanted to avoid the divisions that had ripped England apart into the bloody civil wars of the 17th century. Many of them saw parties or factions as they called them as corrupt relics of the monarchical, monarchical British system that they wanted to discard in favor of a truly democratic 
government. It was not that they didn't like the part. Think it's not that they did not think of parties," said Willard Stern Randall, professor emeritus of history at Champlain College, and biographer of six of the founding fathers. Just the idea of a party brought back bitter memories to some of them. George Washington's family had fled England precisely to avoid the civil wars there, while Alexander Hamilton once called political parties the most fatal disease of popular governments. James Madison, who worked with Hamilton to defend the new constitution to the public in the Federalist Papers, wrote in Federalist Number Ten. That one of the functions of a well-constructed union should be its tendency to break and control the violence of faction, the violence of the political party. But Thomas Jefferson, who was serving a diplomatic post in France during the Constitutional Convention, believed it was a mistake not to provide for different political parties in the new government. Men, by their constitutions, are naturally divided into two parties. He would write in 1824. In fact, when Washington ran unopposed to win the first presidential election in the nation's history in 1789, he chose Jefferson for his cabinet, so it would be inclusive of differing political viewpoints. I think he had been warned if he did not have Jefferson in it, then Jefferson might oppose his government. Randall says, with Jefferson as Secretary of State and Hamilton as Treasury Secretary, two competing visions for America developed into the nation's first two political parties. Supporters of Hamilton's vision of a strong central government, many of whom were northern businessmen, bankers, and merchants who leaned toward England when it came to foreign affairs, and would become known as the Federalists. Jefferson, on the other hand, favored limited federal government and keeping power in state and local hands. His supporters. Tended to be small farmers, artisans, and southern planters who traded with the French and were sympathetic to France. Now you notice here, ladies and gentlemen, in this document that we're reading, it tells you the point of view of Alexander Hamilton, and they name his party as the Federalists. Then it tells you. The、uh, it tells you the stance of Thomas Jefferson and his beliefs, and it tells you who made up that party, but they do not give you the name of Jefferson's party. Now this is a clue, because if you recall back to your school years, as I do mine, there was never a mention. Of the name of Jefferson's party. In fact, the name that we were given when I was in school and they were teaching us this history was not the real name of Jefferson's party. They told us there was Hamilton and the Federalists, and Jefferson and the Anti. 
Federalists, but that was not their correct or historical name, ladies and gentlemen. So, it's the victor controls history, and the people have forgotten that history. And that's why we are where we are. We continue. Though he may had sided with Hamilton in their defense of the Constitution, Madison strongly opposed Hamilton's ambitious financial programs, which he saw as concentrating <clears throat> which he saw as concentrating too much power in the hands of the federal government. In 1791, Madison and Jefferson joined forces in forming what would become the Democratic Republican Party. Forerunner of today's Democratic Party, that's what they say, largely in response to Hamilton's programs, including the federal government's assumption of state's debt and establishment of a national banking system. By the mid-1790s, Jefferson and Hamilton had both quit Washington's cabinet. Meanwhile, the Democratic-Republicans and Federalists spent much of the first president's second term bitterly attacking each other in competing newspapers over their opinions of his administration's policies. When Washington stepped aside as president in 1796, he memorably warned in his farewell address of the divisive influence of factions on the workings of democracy, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interests and duty of a wise people to discourage it and restrain it. He had stayed on for a second term only to keep these two parties from warring with each other, Randall says of Washington. He was afraid of what he called disunion. That if the parties flourished and they kept fighting each other, that the union would break up. By that time, however, the damage had been done. After the highly contentious election of 1796, when John Adams narrowly defeated Jefferson, the new president moved to squash a proposition by making it a federal crime to criticize the president or his administration's policies. Jefferson struck back in spades after toppling the unpopular Adams four years later, when Democratic Republicans won control of both Congress and the presidency. He fired half of all federal employees, the top half, Randall explains. He kept only the clerks and the customs agents, destroying the Federalist Party and making it impossible to rebuild. While the Federalists would never win another presidential election and disappeared for good after the War of 1812, the two-party system revived itself when the rise of Andrew Jackson's Democratic Party by the 1830s and firmly solidified in the 1850s, after the founding of the Republican Party. Though the party's identities and regional identifications would shift greatly over time, the two-party system we know today had fallen into place by 1860, even as the nation stood poised on the brink of the very civil war 
that Washington and other founding fathers had desperately wanted to avoid. So that's just, um, this, that's a fragment, a piece of that history. This comes from history.com. Honestly, I don't expect history.com to give us, you know, the whole enchilada, right? But I would say that we should definitely reflect on the wisdom of the founding father, ladies and gentlemen, of this nation. And that is George Washington, who had the wisdom to look beyond the individual or distinct needs of the person uh, that caused the divide, right? You know, and again, we're talking like a Hamilton versus Jefferson thing. We're talking like an aristocrat versus a rural type of ideal thinking. And again, just to highlight, President Washington, President Washington said, I was no party man myself. And the first wish of my heart was if parties did not exist, uh, sorry, if parties did exist to reconcile them, if parties did exist to reconcile them. Are we beyond the point of reconciliation with our Democrat brothers and sisters? Now, I'm not talking about the communists and the progressive socialists, right? Oh, Mr. C. <laughs> if you're going to include one, you got to include all. If they are proud Americans, if they love this country, this constitution, and this land... I don't care what political party they are. It just so happens that the ones who call themselves communists and progressive Democrats and progressive socialists do not like America. They do not like the founding fathers and our founding documents. They do not like our flag. They do not like what this country stands for. And so I would submit that they are not American. And so I don't need to reconcile with them. But for those who do love this country and for those that do love this nation, our founding documents and what this country stands for, regardless of their political party, are we beyond reconciliation with them? I was no party man myself. And the first wish of my heart was, if parties did exist, to reconcile them. The words of our first president, George Washington. You know. Further on that, probably his most infamous statement on political parties, this is also what George Washington said. However, combinations or associations of the above description, or however political parties, right? However, they may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning ambitious and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them into unjust 
Dominion. Just refreshers. Just reminders. When you hear some crazy lunatic crackpot talking about getting rid of political parties, there's a reason for it. There's a wisdom behind it. We talk about the nature of division that Marxists throw upon us with their critical race theory and their uh, 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 causing infighting between races, between genders, between sexual preferences, and yet we don't include the political party as part of that divisiveness, we have to think about that, okay? We have to think about that. We know that race and gender and sexual preference and political party divide. But why is it when it comes down to the thought of our own personal political identification, we do not include that within that blanket of labeling and division? These are just food for thought. Uh, this statement came from George Washington's farewell address dated September 17th, 1796, a day after my birthday, anyways. <laughs> I wanted to uh, share some more with you about uh, this notion. This uh, statement uh, that I just read to you from uh, Pre uh, President, Wa President Washington about uh, political parties um, <clears throat> being an engine for um, unscrupulous men to destroy a nation. Uh, Washington warned the American people against the negative impact that opposing political parties could have on the country. During his presidency, he witnessed the rise of the Democratic Republican Party in opposition to the Federalists and worried that future political squabbles would undermine the concept of popular sovereignty in the United States. So that brings us to today and to the origins of the political parties, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that with some historical context, okay? Because once the Federalists were gone, and you had, as the main party, the Democratic Republicans, at what point do they split and become the Democrats and the Republicans? Well, that one version we saw shows that uh, that shows that Andrew Jackson was actually behind most of that. But uh, let's just re refresh through this history, okay? The Democratic Republican Party and the First Party System. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson felt the federal government had overstepped its authority by adopting the Treasury Secretary's plan. Madison found Hamilton's scheme immoral and offensive. He argued that it turned the reins of government over to the class of speculators who profited at the expense of hard-working citizens. I'm going to expand that just a little bit, guys. We're going to get a little bit more sauce out of this article here. Jefferson, who had returned to the United States in 1790 as a diplomat in France, tried unsuccessfully to convince Washington to block the creation of a national bank. He also took issue with what he perceived as favoritism given to commercial classes in the principal American cities. He thought urban life widened the gap between the wealthy few and an underclass of landless poor workers who, 
because of their oppressed condition, could never be good Republican property owners. Rural areas, in contrast of people of God, oh wait, excuse me, rural areas, in contrast of, um, uh, in contrast, offered far more opportunities for people, property ownership, and virtue. In 1783, Jefferson wrote, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God if ever he had a chosen people. Jefferson believed that self-sufficient, property-owning, Republican citizens or yeomen farmers held the key to the success and longevity of the American Republic. As a creature of his times, he did not envision a similar role for either women or non-white men. Uh, you know that these documents have to include that uh, systemic racism, right? So never mind that, okay? To him, Hamilton's program seems to encourage economic inequalities and work against the ordinary American yeoman farmer. Opposition to Hamilton, who had significant power in the new federal government, including the ear of President Washington, began in earnest in the early 1790s. Jefferson turned to his friend Philip Freneau to help organize the effort through the publication of the National Gazette as a counter to the Federalist press, especially the Gazette of the United States. From 1791 until 1793, when it ceased publication, Freneau's partisan paper attacked Hamilton's program and Washington's administration. Rules of Changing a Republic into a Monarchy, written by Freneau, is an example of the type of attack um, aimed at the national government, and especially at the elitism of the Federalist Party. Newspapers in the 1790s became enormously important in American culture as partisans like Freneau attempted to sway public opinion. These newspapers did not aim to be objective. Instead, they served to broadcast the views of a, a particular party. Um, opposition, okay, so Federalists and Democrats. Opposition to the Federalists led to the formation of the Democratic Republican societies, composed of men who felt the domestic policies of the Washington administration were designed to enrich the few while ignoring everyone else. Democratic Republicans championed the government, or championed limited government. Their fear of centralized power originated in the experience of the 1760s and 1770s when the distant, overbearing, and seemingly corrupt British Parliament attempted to oppose its will on the colonies. To opponents, the Federalists promoted aristocracy and monarchical government a betrayal of what many believed to be the goal of the American Revolution. While wealthy merchants and planters formed the core of the Federalist leadership, members of the Democrat Democratic-Republican societies in cities like Philadelphia and New York came from the ranks of artisans. These citizens saw themselves as acting in the spirit of 1776, uh, this time not against the haughty British, but by what they believed to have replaced them, a commercial class with no interest in public good. 
Their political efforts against the Federalists were a battle to preserve republicanism, to promote the public good against private self-interest. They published their views, held meetings to voice their opposition, and sponsored festivals and parades. In their strident newspaper attacks, they also worked to undermine the traditional forms of deference and subordination to aristocrats, as they viewed, in this case, the Federalist elites. Some members of Northern Democratic Republican clubs denounced slavery as well. Okay, so a little bit more history, right, on this all. A little bit more history uh, to kind of get an idea of where we stood. Stuff that I never understood. You know, I don't remember ever learning about Democratic Republicans when I was in high school. Um, I remember the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and that's about all that we got back then, as far as that goes. Um, we'll do one more brief, uh, brief uh, text on the topic, and, uh, and then uh, we'll take it from there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this one's going to go past 17... Uh, 88, and it's going to talk a little bit more about uh, what what they were experiencing in the colonies around uh, in relationship to the Federalists and in relationship to uh, the Democratic Republicans, okay? And let me expand that for you guys so you can get a good view on it, all right? In June 1788, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify the federal constitution and the new plan for a strong central government went into effect. Elections for the first U.S. Congress were held in 1788 and 1789 and members took their seats in March of 1789. In reflection, in a reflection of the trust placed in him as the personification of Republican virtue, George Washington became the first president in April 1789. John Adams served as his vice president. The pairing of a representative from Virginia, Washington, and one from Massachusetts, Adams, symbolized national unity. Nonetheless, political divisions quickly became apparent. Washington and Adams represented the Federalist Party, which generated a backlash among those who resided uh, resisted the new government's assertion of federal power. Though the revolution had overthrown British rule in the United States, supporters of the 1787 federal constitution, known as Federalists, adhered to a decidedly British notion of a social hierarchy. The Federalists did not at first compose a political party. Instead, Federalists had certain shared assumptions. For them, Political participation continued to be linked to property rights, which barred many citizens from voting or holding office. Federalists did not believe the revolution had changed the traditional social roles between women and men or between whites and other races. They did believe in clear distinctions in rank and intelligence. To these supporters of the Constitution... The idea that all were equal appeared ludicrous. Women, blacks, and native peoples, they argued, had to know their place as secondary to white male citizens. Attempts to impose equality, they feared, would destroy the republic. The United States was not created to be a democracy, according to this paper. 
the architects of the Constitution committed themselves to leading the new republic, and they held a majority among the members of the new national government. Indeed, as expected, many assumed the new executive posts the first Congress created. Washington appointed Alexander Hamilton, a leading Federalist, as Secretary of the Treasurer. For Secretary of State, he chose Thomas Jefferson. For Secretary of War, he appointed Henry Knox, who had served with him during the Revolutionary War. Edmund Randolph, a Virginia delegate to the Constitutional Convention, was named Attorney General. In July 1789, Congress also passed the Judiciary Act, creating a Supreme Court of six justices headed by those who were committed to the new national government. Congress passed its first major piece of legislation by placing a duty on imports under the 1789 Tariff Act. Intended to raise revenue to address the country's economic problems, the act was a victory for nationalists who favored a robust, powerful federal government and had worked unsuccessfully for similar measures during the Confederation Congress in the 1780s. Congress also placed a 50 cent per ton duty based on materials transported, not the weight of a ship, on foreign ships coming into American ports, a move designed to give the commercial advantage to American goods and ships. So a little bit more perspective there, you know. On my part, ladies and gentlemen, if I'm being absolutely honest, I would have to say I would need to go back because, you know, letters, papers, writings, etc. exist. You know, I'm sure they exist. Where I could, I could read George Washington saying, well, you know, a woman and a black and a Native American is not equal to the white man. You know what I mean? Do you follow on that? Like, uh, uh, just like I have to go digging for information, for news and for reporting, I need to go digging for that type of information as well. Because uh, that could be a total misnomer of history. It could be an assumption. It could be an assumption, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know. I don't know. I haven't read any such things. So why would I believe that that is true? If I'm uh, making sense to you guys. Okay. Uh, Last thing on this topic, as far as the history of our nation and political parties go, I'm going to uh, share with you all a video that um, if anything, it should tie up all the loose ends about the topic. Uh, It comes from the public broadcasting system, ladies and gentlemen. So try to take it with a grain of salt. You know what I mean. Just like with that last, uh, just like with that last article that had its uh, systemic racism embedded in the words and the texts. Uh, Just take it with a grain of salt. If they say anything, just keep focused on the actual literal history of it, not the uh, coloring of, uh, of, um, of thoughts and opinions within it, okay? All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this and we'll wrap up this topic for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. The Sea Report and all the shows on this podcast channel are 100% listener-supported. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have independent sponsors. Our sponsors are you, the listener. So if you like the work we do and like what we have to say and contribute to the world of news and information and entertainment, please show us your support. 
Make a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash the sea report. Your support is greatly appreciated. From 99 cents per month to 4.99 per month to 9.99 per month. Every donation counts and every bit helps. Show your support for the Sea Report and other shows on this podcast channel by visiting anchor.fm/theseareport. And thanks y'all. In his farewell address to the nation on September 19, 1796, founding father and president George Washington issued a grave warning. But what was the looming evil that he foresaw as the great risk to the fledgling United States? Political parties. The farewell address was published in the Daily American Advertiser, a Philadelphia newspaper. He wrote, "The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism." It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. Washington's advice against political parties was shared by one of his successors, John Adams, who in 1780 commented, "A division of the republic into two great parties is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil." So with these explicit warnings as the foundation of our country, how and why did political parties form? And how did the US end up with essentially a two-party system? Today we'll get to the bottom of this history and work through why political parties have always been a contentious institution in the United States. So before we get into how we ended up with the two most powerful and well-known political parties in the US today, the Democrats and Republicans, we should first look at what a political party even is and how they got their start in the United States. According to political scientist Robert Hochschorn in his book Political Parties in America, an American political party is an autonomous group of citizens having the purpose of making nominations and contesting elections in hope of gaining control over governmental power through the capture of public offices and the organization of the government. Now this doesn't encompass the vast array of political parties that span the globe, and political scientists don't agree on the working definition of what a political party is or should be. Some assert that political parties are merely organizational tools for winning elections, while others claim political parties are tied together by their ideological roots. For the purposes of our video, we'll stick with Huxhorn's definition because it most closely mirrors what most political parties are today. But they weren't invented on American soil. In fact, they date back decades before 1776, and a lot of this origin story explains why the founding fathers were so resistant to the idea. Before there were the American political parties that we know today, there were the factions of England and the Glorious Revolution. And even back then, we're still dealing with two major parties. Except during this time, it was the Whigs and the Tories, not the Republicans and Democrats. The Glorious Revolution of 1688 in Britain saw the replacement of Catholic King James II with his Protestant daughter Mary and her husband William of Orange. The revolution, also sometimes referred to as the Bloodless Revolution, lasted until 1689 and achieved a few major goals. First was the replacement of a Catholic king with a Protestant monarch. The second was an increase in the power of parliament and a decrease in the power of the monarchy, which some historians conclude was the beginning of the introduction of democratic systems in Britain. And finally, it was a key moment in the bitter and sustained battles between the Whigs and the Tories that cemented the political parties. 
So flash forward to the founding of the U.S., Many of the authors of the Constitution were wary of the factions that had formed in Britain during the preceding decades and were quick to warn against it, but that didn't stop political parties from taking hold. The first political parties or factions in the newly formed United States were the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. Although judging from the kind of confusing name mashup, you might guess that the Democratic Republicans were the predecessors of the current Democratic and Republican parties, but they were actually, more accurately, anti-Federalist. So Federalists, led in large part by men like our first Secretary of the Treasury and later star of an award-winning hip-hop musical, Alexander Hamilton, believed in a strong central federal government. Hamilton and his followers envisioned a U.S. where trade, a centralized bank, and international relations, specifically with Britain, were key to the future of the new nation. This was also often seen as the party of the elite and well-to-do. On the other hand, the Democratic Republicans, led by men like future President Thomas Jefferson, favored an agrarian society ruled by smaller local governments instead of a central power. They also favored an alliance with France. These early parties paved the way for the bipartisan system that we all know and love to hate on to this day. So early political parties in the U.S. were rapidly evolving and changing, and by the 19th century, they were fully entrenched. But that didn't mean that people were any more keen on the idea of a two-party system, or that the term party wasn't still heavily associated with political discord and self-serving individuals. The word was a close synonym for factions and had a largely negative connotation in both the U.S. and throughout Europe. By the 19th century, we start to see political parties operating in much the way we think of them today, helping candidates to run for office and shoring up political support from the, at that time, expanding electorate. In the Handbook of Party Politics, political scientist Susan E. Scarrow writes, The emergence of party-organized politics was an unanticipated and even unwanted side effect of the liberalization and democratization of politics in that century. Although countries took varied routes to the modern party era, by the beginning of the 20th century, recognizably modern parties had begun to play an important role in many places, structuring electoral choices, coordinating legislative and executive action, mobilizing the electorate, and recruiting candidates. Scarrow attributes some of this to parliamentarization across different European countries, which is a mouthful of a word that essentially means the expansion of parliamentary governments. However, she does note that we can't attribute the rise of political parties in the 19th century just to that long word that I really don't want to say another time, because the process spread throughout Europe at different rates and times. Now back to the American two-party system. The Democrats were formed in the 1820s with Andrew Jackson as their figurehead, who would later become president. Jackson's Democrats of the early 19th century supported westward expansion and the subjugation of Native American people with things like the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and the later adoption of Manifest Destiny, or the belief that the United States should expand across the entire North American continent. By the time we see the emergence of the Republicans after the collapse of the Whigs, the Democrats were already a few decades old. In the 1850s, the Democrats were largely made up of voters from the southern states that supported the continuation and expansion of slavery. In 1854, just seven years before the onset of the American Civil War, the Republican Party was formed out of the ashes of the Whigs, not the ones from the Glorious Revolution. These were all new Whigs. The Whigs, later the Republicans, were largely made up of Northerners. And although they were divided on the issue of slavery, their traditional power base opposed expanding slavery into the new states being incorporated into the U.S. at the time. The Republicans managed to elect a president, Abraham Lincoln, to office. And although Lincoln vowed not to interfere in slavery in the southern states, he was also in favor of his party's plan not to see it expanded. 
Southern states eventually seceded from the Union over the issue of slavery, forming the Confederate States of America. The remaining Northern states, called the Union, fought to keep them from seceding in the Civil War. The North emerged victorious, and the Republican Party set about expanding rights and freedoms to newly emancipated Black citizens. But those same citizens were met with resistance and oftentimes violence by Southern Democrats who sought to keep racial hierarchies in place. But in the 1870s, after the end of the period known as Reconstruction, Northern Republicans effectively gave up on the agenda of reforming the South. This time period would see the rise of anti-Black legislation, such as first Black Codes and later Jim Crow, that spread throughout the region well into the mid-20th century. You can learn more about that in our video, The Racist Origins of U.S. Law. By the 20th century, the identities of the now firmly established two major political parties began to shift again. According to Vox, this period saw a marked shift for a couple of reasons. First, they note that many Northern Republicans had become wealthy as a result of government contracts during the Civil War. As they were effectively abandoning an agenda of racial progress and enfranchisement for Black citizens, parts of the Republican Party began to form its identity around being pro-business. And while this was useful during times of prosperity, it was less helpful during times of financial adversity. Enter the Great Depression. In the 1930s, the U.S. was going through a huge economic downturn. In the ensuing chaos, the country elected a Democratic president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who sought to end the financial crisis through the creation and expansion of government programs between 1933 and 1939, like the Social Security Administration and Public Works Projects. This helped to rebrand the Democratic Party as one that was in favor of a more hands-on approach to an expansive government. But the party's identities were still in flux. Over time, the Republican Party cemented its identity around issues like decreasing the role of government and supporting business, while Democrats became divided around the issue of race. Older Southern Democrats were entrenched in their belief in a pro-segregation agenda, while Northern and Western Democrats supported the civil rights agendas of the 1950s and 1960s. Soon, the Southern Democrats who opposed integration all but abandoned the Democratic Party in favor of Republican ideologies, marking a seismic shift in the identities of both parties. Additionally, an increase in the number of minority voters in the subsequent years saw another shift in the demographic makeup of the Democratic Party, with large blocks of Black voters who had historically supported Republican candidates jumping ship for a new political identity. So there you have it, folks. The road to the two-party system in the U.S. had its start at the very beginning of our country and continues to polarize voters to this day. But if you're interested in learning more about third-party candidates in the 19th and 20th century who defied the two-party system, be sure to check out our video on the history of socialism in America. And according to some, partisanship is only getting worse and worse in the U.S., a 2020 Pew survey found that roughly four in 10 registered voters in both camps said that they do not have a single close friend who supports the other major party candidate, and fewer than a quarter say they have more than a few friends who do. Most voters instead report having a lot of friends who share their political preferences. Perhaps this increase in polarization and partisan politics is what Washington and Adams most feared way back in the 18th century when they warned us to love country over party. Perhaps in the future we'll see a decrease in the influence of major parties in U.S. politics. But for now, it seems like these century-old institutions are here for the long haul. So, what... <laughs>
<laughs> okay, lady. All right, we'll leave your goofy, falsy bear face on the screen for now. So, okay, so, you know, I said to take it a great, with a grain of salt for a reason, because, like, I'm looking for videos that explain a lot, but, of course, there's some stuff interjected here. Some of the caveats that we'd like to consider when we're considering the history of our nation and we're talking about who did what, when, and where is uh, the things that are untold in our history, the things that are unspoken of, you know, such as Alexander Hamilton being an agent of the Rothschilds of Europe here in America working as what? In the ear of George Washington as the Treasury Secretary. So, you know, those accents are very important to understand, especially when we start talking about uh, the later history Right, the more modern history as opposed to the 1700s when this woman's going into the 1900s and to Jim Crow laws and to the revolution and all that stuff is we'd have to understand, obviously, at what point do we have those infiltrators coming in to steer the nation in the direction that the bankers wanted us to go? Because let's not forget, up until Andrew Jackson... We had control by the uh, bankers of Europe in America. That's right. From uh, basically the first Bank of America to the second Bank of America. And no, we're not talking about Bank of America, right? We're talking about the first and second central banks of America, which Alexander Hamilton was, um, was um, um, successful in initiating that right from the jump in our nation. Now think about that. You know, the Boston Tea Party and the separation of, of, of our people from the British had nothing to do with taxing stamps. It was about the taxation that they put on the money, okay, and how it created negative wealth. It created debt. It made us debt slaves. And, and as you all understand now, in regard to the Federal Reserve, as the third central bank of America, which is ruled or uh, controlled by um, um, international interests, same deal, right? Okay, so that's, those are the other fine accentations that we have to consider. You know, when they're talking about uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and during the Great Depression, well, was he an agent of any of these interests, the globalist interests, right? The technocratic interests, if you will, ladies and gentlemen of that time. All of these things are to consider. And then don't you just like how she says, if you'd like to find out more information about the rise of the third parties and how they resisted the two-party system, be sure to check out our video, Socialism in America. Bullshit, lady. We don't need no freaking socialists here in our country. You know, what about all the other third parties and the other independent parties in this nation that resist, resist the two-party faction and they want PBS, public broadcasting system. They, they use our tax dollars against us, ladies and gentlemen. They want you to focus on socialism as the uh, party that uh, that resists, right? Resists with that strong arm, resists the two-party system. Okay, so very interesting. So a lot of things to consider in that one video there. And uh, I know my audience has the, uh, has the brains to stomach it, ladies and gentlemen, because that's like, dang, you know, there's a lot right there, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, just a brief look at our past and why I say some of the things I say. Other than just the fact that it's plain old common sense, we don't need political parties. And there is a very good reason for it. 
you know, there's a very good reason for it in this day and age. And I feel as if though, based on everything that we've experienced to this point, reflecting on the beliefs of our founding fathers, particularly George Washington, per the political party and why he opposed it, and how that idea has been flushed down the toilet of history is worth plunging for, if you will, ladies. It's worth bringing back up and resuscitating within our minds uh, just to get an understanding of where we are and where we could go, you know, just to get an understanding. But there's historical, there's historical impetus behind it. And I'm sure you all can appreciate that. Okay. All right, guys. So uh, we're going to do some overdrive tonight. Uh, today is Wednesday. Now, typically uh, tonight, I would be doing a show over at uh, the Speak Easy's channel over at the foxhole.app or pill.net. Uh, and I'm sure you all are familiar with it. Unfortunately, our dear friend, the bartender is not well at this moment. So uh, positive thoughts and prayers in the direction of the bartender at the Speak Easy as his body heals just a little bit under the weather. So I'm going to run into I'm going to do a little bit of overtime tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to do tonight, uh, uh, in light of everything that has happened since Monday, you know, uh, considering the FBI raid and uh, all that which took place, um, and, and then also as a bit of a reflection on the topic that we just discussed, ladies and gentlemen, um, I thought uh, that um, I would um, go ahead and broadcast on this episode of The Sea Report uh, the un the entirety of President Trump's speech at CPAC Texas that took place this past weekend. Uh, so many of you out there might have seen it already, and many of you may not have had the opportunity, but maybe you heard about it. And I heard President Trump mentioned many things in this uh, speech uh, that he hadn't brought up in a while. And um, this is a speech he gave, uh, yeah, just about the day before the raid, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and uh, a couple of days after he swept Arizona and really put the globalists um, at alarm for the sake of their existence, backed him into the corner. And then you look at Wisconsin you got Michael, you got, uh, you got Timothy Michaels, who is uh, the primary candidate for governor in uh, Wisconsin. You got, uh, uh, what is this, ladies and gentlemen? What's this? The Band of Brothers? Who? What? What? Jamie Herrera Butler? What happened? Have I been asleep? She's been dethroned, ladies and gentlemen, in Washington. Another Trump impeacher. In fact, both of the Trump impeachers in Washington no longer will serve in Congress. So, a lot is happening. And, uh, well, I didn't get to hear the speech, and I want to catch up. Do you guys want to catch up with me? I hope you do. Uh, without further ado, and to close off the night, uh, I present to you President Donald Trump, the 45th President of these United States of America, Live at CPAC Texas 2022 in Dallas, Texas. Enjoy, ladies and gentlemen, the words of our president. 
voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight. I am with you. I will fight for you. And I will win for you. Georgia. Uh, President Trump truthed about this earlier. Ballot images missing, right? Drop boxes with no video. And Disney's like, well, we don't care about that. We're going to die on this hill. We're going to be gay and we're going to rape our children no matter what you say because we are Disney. Uh, we don't normally run see in the dark uh, during the week. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, what the heck is this bald band talking about? Uh, you know, multiple broadcasts and shows come here on Mr. CTV channel. Uh, so you got your C report Monday through Friday in the evening hours, right? And uh, we do see in the dark, which is a late night weekend talk show kind of, you know, broadcast, right? So guys, watch out. We got a swamp creature coming to the screen. So look out now. Look out now. <laughs> oh no, it's wretched Gretchen Whitmer.